economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right, well, we have a guest today here, Dr. Jeffrey Heyman from Cedarville University. He went there in 2010 after a 29-year career in the United States Air Force. Thank you for your service. While in the Air Force, he had assignments in engineering, satellite control, launch operations. Sounds like a lot of strategy type stuff that the economics brain must have helped with. He also taught in the United States Air Force Academy and was an Air Force Fellow at the Brookings Institution. Research has been published in the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics, Public Choice, so he's right up the alley here for faith and economics type topics. Current research interest includes economics and religion, as well as monetary theory. Dr. Heyman has a passion for thinking biblically and economically, considers the integration of Christian worldview in the broader society the most positive social policy possible. So, Jeff, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. And today's title of Biblical Anthropology, I'm excited to get into the details and hear what you have to say about that stuff. Well, it's great to be here with you. I appreciate you giving me some time to be on. Great. So tell us a little bit about this chapter in a book you mentioned is part loosely what you're wanting to talk about today. Sure. You know, I've got an introductory textbook that I have online. I call it No Free Lunch Economics for a Fallen World. And and it's, it's meant to cover kind of the basics of economics. We teach it and use it here at Cedarville in our essentials class, for instance, appropriate for maybe high schoolers that they're trying to prepare for the uh, maybe the AP test or any other introductory class that you might want to go through. But I put it online to try to make it accessible to everyone. We're now in our third edition. And in the third edition, I kind of revamped chapter one a little bit to more give a, a sure foundation in Genesis of what grounds economics. And, and so what I talk about in this biblical anthropology is really trying to understand what it means to be human. So when we think about economics, all of us that are involved in economics, which several of you are, uh, understand that, that really what we're all about is trying to figure out how people respond to incentives, how people choose, really. I mean, that's kind of the heart of economics. We, we talk about we live in a world of scarcity. And so how do we, we make these decisions when, they, when in a scarce world, there's an opportunity cost, we say, the next <laughs> best alternative, every choice. All these things are out there. But, but at the heart, it's, it's, it's how do humans choose, right? Yeah. When I and, explain and that way to my, when I explain that way my, to my brother, Jeff, he's like, that's what economics is. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, that sounds pretty interesting. You know, when, when we, when we frame it that way, and that's the way I like to frame it to my principal students as well, as well as the listeners of this podcast that I hope they start to get the feel after a few episodes that that's what it's all about. Well, I like to tease people, you know, I'm the, the dean of the business school here at Cedarville, but I always tell them I'm the social scientist hidden in the business school. I'm in all <laughs> of my business professionals. <laughs> but yeah, it is a social science because we need to understand what it means to be human. And so uh, one of the really core critiques of economics is kind of this conventional model of what we call homo economicus. Uh, and and the, the neoclassical orthodoxy, which dominates the profession, certainly has a view of the human as 
as being an optimizing agent that, that in, its, in its most strong sense, and I think this is un, unfortunate, I don't think it's really fair to neoclassical economics, but the caricature is, is that we're almost like human calculating machines, always walking around calculating costs and benefits and doing that math, and, and there we make the choice. And, I, and, I've, and, learned, and so, I've learned that I'm the only one who's actually really like that as a human being. When Peter and I were out fishing the other day, he said, you are always thinking that way, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I can't escape this brain. So, but as I've talked to other human beings through the 49 years of my life, I, I found that I'm like one of the few. So homo economics, <laughs> this is definitely called into question at different points. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's even you and, and you're teasing. I, I appreciate the humor here. But all of us do that to a degree. So, so it's not that the homo economicus is, is a bad assumption in the sense that, you know, people don't try to figure out what the best choice is. It's just not like we're not like the human calculating machines. So some parts of the critique, I mean, you know, the behavioral economists will, will and the Keynesians will have many critiques on that, that kind of view of rationality and, and what it looks like. But I think they miss the mark of what it is. And I, I come at it more from an Austrian perspective in general, but more explicitly here, I come at it from a Christian perspective. And I say, think for in chapter one of my book, I, I say, if we're going to understand what it means to choose, we really need to understand what it means to be human. And so that's where I say, like in many things, we have to go back to the Bible specifically, and most importantly, to Genesis. And we've got to go to the, the operating manual. What does it mean to be human? And, and we start to see uh, kind of this created order leads to some interesting things that, that apply to how we choose, to the kinds of economic institutions that are likely to best serve us in the reality of what we are and so forth. So uh, that's kind of where I start out my book is, is kind of going what it means to be human. And I can go right into it, but it, maybe if you, unless you have any questions on what I just said. So I guess just to clarify, to understand what you're saying, Neoclassical economics has a specific sort of like anthropology, which either mm -hmm. is like, you know, trying to be descriptive, or maybe it's just like a simplifying assumption or something like that. And are you saying that there's some alternative anthropology that may not totally conflict, but is at least a little different that you're getting that from scripture? Absolutely. I mean, okay. you could get the same kind of critique, kind of the Austrian critique of neoclassical economics, right. right? This, it's you know, even like things like the perfect information kinds of assumptions that are embedded in and understanding tastes and preferences all ahead of, of time by the neoclassical cons. Austrians would critique that, but but I'm taking a, a further critique, resonating with a lot of this. I think there's a lot of alignment between Christian worldview as well as traditional free market thinking, and and I'll explain why as we go through this. So let's just start with some of the high level and we'll go as deep as you guys want to, to, to take this. So, so when we think about being created as humans, first of all, we start with in, in the beginning, God. I mean, those first four words of the Bible say a lot. In the beginning, there was a God. I kind of outlined this, but, but that suggests that there's some sort of being that's beyond what we see in the here and now. There, there was a creator. We start with that presupposition. Well, if, if there was a creator, that, that means we are the created. That has some interesting implications for us. One of the things is to be the kind of God that could order the universe, that could speak things into existence, that is outside time. Well, that's suggestive that this God is an infinite being. It's whatever we can imagine he, if we want to call it he, which the Bible does, is beyond anything that, that kind of we can, can imagine or understand. And so we would say that if there is a creator... That creator is independent, and we, being the created humans, are dependent. 
And the Bible tells us that. We are dependent on God for everything. In him we, we live and move and, and have our, our being, as, as the Apostle Paul says. So this creature-creator distinction has a link between the finite and the infinite kind of uh, uh, parallel here that we see. And so that ought to, right away, give us as humans a little bit of humility. <laughs> it translates, and I'll just jump to one conclusion right now, and we can come back to it and develop it more fully. But, you know, when we start thinking about being able to run our world and manage an economy, you know, there are people that think we can do this. You know, that's a whole socialism thing. We think we have knowledge. No, we really don't. And that's Hayek's critique, right? The knowledge argument, and there's the calculation argument Mises has and others. But the biblical view would say, you know, there is an order that's ongoing. There are sovereign providential plans that we don't kind of understand. And we get to be part of this and we get to shape it. We'll see how that task comes in a moment. But we ought to just start with a little bit of humility. That's kind of one of the very first things we find in the first verses of the Bible in Genesis. So that's kind of what we see in Genesis 1, not even just 1-1. One, one. We only got to four words with that, right? So then we can we can look at, you know, day one in the, in the created order. And, and so we start have to say, he made the heavens and the earth, right? And, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the spirit of the deep, and, and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. That's kind of what we start to get in uh, this description of this day one. And what we see, we go from day one, heavens and earth, and we have light, and, and, and then there's a firmament. And each day, here's, here's the interesting thing, each day we see chaos becoming increasingly put into order, right? That's, that's what we see. And, and not just chaos going to order, but get this. We see a, a uniformity leading to more diversity as well, right? You know, as, as animals are created and plants are created and they are created after their kind. And then subsequently we're told they're going to go forth and multiply. And, and there's, there's this diversity that's being created. So that starts to hint at what the nature of God is and what what a good plan is, because as you may know, probably most of your listeners would know, that at each day of creation, God calls it good. At the conclusion of day six, he calls it very good. So there's a moral assessment already that, that the idea of being creative, the idea of taking chaos and making order is a good thing. And then we take that a little further in Genesis 1, and, and we get to the uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, when this is kind of a, what we call the cultural mandate or the uh, dominion mandate. And this is where God gives us the command, to, uh, he makes uh, um, male and female in his image, right? And so this, let me go uh, and read this to us, because I think that would be a worthwhile, just this one most famous part of our, our creation mandate. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so this is a really, really fundamental thing about what it means to be human, to be created in God's image. And so we just saw in the previous six days of creation, and this is the culmination of day six, we see that God is creating order out of chaos. 
He's creating more diversity and that creative, he's a creative being and we're made in his image, male and female. And so there's just, we could spend, we could spend like eons talking about this, probably will in eternity, who knows. But, but the point is just from an economic standpoint, we start to see there as a task for humans to create order out of chaos. When we do, we are imaging our creator and we are bringing glory to him. And we see because male and female are both created as image, that's, that gives us this equality in our uh, dignity that, that we are supposed to be co-creators to mirror our father. And so that has implications for us. Uh, look, Rush, it looks like you're going to ask yeah, me a question. So I, we'll I, pause I, there. I yeah. just wanted to throw out and ask you your input on it. I find it striking in those words from the Bible that the people with opposite worldviews will point exactly to that scripture and say, that's what's the problem with Christianity. They think that we're supposed to rule over the earth and that we have the right to do anything uh -huh. we want to, to the environment, to our betterment and in the name of God's name. And so I've, I've yeah. heard people point to those same scriptures. So it, it seems like such a, an important point that here we are trying to get this biblical anthropology, but at these foundational points is where some of people who think the other way would try to use it against Christians or Christianity. Well, you know, we, we, we need to say right up front, they've got a point, but let me say what since they do have a point, right? This is really clear. We haven't gotten to Genesis 3 yet, and that's going to be an important point of this, and that's the fall, where in, in days one through six of, of creation, God called all things good. But, but let, me, let me go now hard against that, that interpretation. They'll say, when it says rule over, the, the, the actual Hebrew in here is a very, very harsh word. We are to take dominion. We are to, to rule like, like a heavy hand and thumb on creation. And that heavy hand is good when we are acting according to God's purposes. And in the beginning, that's the way things should have been. Now, to give them their due, when we have the fall, when we become corrupted, you know, then we start to see that humans will do all sorts of wicked things. It doesn't take very far. In Genesis 4, we have the first murder, right? We are capable of monstrous evils to include thinking that you know, bottom line, it's all about us, right? You know, that's kind of our big sin pattern. We're all pretty fleshly, can go well beyond the environment. So, but the dominion, we want to instead take that dominion and serve ourselves selfishly and not steward the garden. But the task that we actually have to couple that is, is actually given in, in Genesis 2. We're given a task to cultivate and keep the garden. And that is, that gives kind of a different image. You know, the image I have that cultivate and keep in chapter two of Genesis is, is actually more, you can almost picture, you know, there's Japanese that do that. I think it's the bonsai tree. Your, your audience may know better than me on this, but just almost like this careful carving and, and tending, pruning very small amounts. It's, it's not harsh at all. It's trying to steward and nurture the growth of that. Jeff, I, I just had a quick question, and maybe I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but you uh, you pointed out one of the things that I was going to mention, which is that we are created in God's image, and also there's a fall. And so you mentioned like a biblical anthropology, and so I'm curious if a biblical anthropology characterizes humans as order creators or disorder creators. I think that's going to really depend on how the fall is interpreted, what that turns us into. And before you answer that, this looks like a good, that's a great cliffhanger to bring us into the second half, because I think I was right in line with Peter. I thought 
the distinction of what you just said with to rule and have dominion over doesn't help us really understand left-leaning and right-leaning Christians in terms of big government or small government. I think that particular statement in the Bible says that we have to be active. It doesn't say how active, right? And and how that should look. But I think it's instructive that prior to that, those statements, you had this more God-created spontaneous order that was emerging, the heavens and the earth, the forming of the seas, the da-da-da-da-da. That was all done without. So I think that it brings an interesting balance that that doesn't mean we create, we are in charge and create all the order, but rather there's some sort of balance in between there. And I think that's what that we have our, our sights cut out deeply on trying to find, figure out those distinctions. So with that, let's go to a short break here. Keep that as a cliffhanger and we'll be back in just a bit. By 2030, the Gordon Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith and their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to students' experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and encouraging education on the faith and economics. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University seeks to create an intercollegiate competition event to promote improved understanding of philosophy, politics, and economics, PPE, and applications of classical liberalism in the defense of Western civilization. The philosophy component will revolve around the importance of reason and free, honest discourse. The politics component will highlight the historical importance of the rule of law and limited government in the promotion of human flourishing. The economics component will focus on the role of freedom and markets in generating prosperity, focusing on the works of economists in the tradition of Adam Smith, Mises, Hayek, and Thomas Sowell. Colleges will create academic teams of three to 12 members that will engage in lots of activities that surround these topics. If you want to have your student, or if you are a student that wants to go to a college that does stuff like that, Come and see us at Ottawa University. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or recurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. All right, welcome back. So Jeff was just leading us down some fantastic stuff of uh, foundations, biblical worldview and anthropology. And I guess that last cliffhanger was just talking a little bit about the distinction of order and and how how much is man you know does god lead it leave it in our hands to create all this order i think part of the knowledge problem that we were discussing earlier that that maybe some people some christians for that matter have the idea that more managed order is better and then other people maybe like the people on this podcast speaking right now are thinking we should we should leave a little more to just the average joe and let let things fall where they may so what, what are your thoughts there jeff yeah, thanks for your question, Russ, about emergent and spontaneous order. I, I think that myself personally, I prefer the use of the term emergent order rather than spontaneous, which kind of thing kind of connotes to me at least that hey, things just sort of happen on their own, like Shazam out of, uh, of thin air. Whereas what we see the order that emerges in our economy is the deliberate, intentional actions of many individuals leads to an order that was not part of their plan. But we can't escape the fact that the order is driven and emerges from the mutually beneficial exchanges and actions of many individuals. And so I kind of prefer that kind of use of that term. 
But I think you were re- also really getting to this point of, of, of who should be creating that order. Is that something that the individual actions should lead to, or is that something that could be managed at a social level? I've already kind of given one hint that the fact that we are uh, kind of dependent and finite beings ought to give us a little bit of humility in that regard. And this would get to kind of F.A. Hayek's quote. It's never a question of whether we're going to have plans. The question is, who's going to be doing that planning? Is it the plans of the many or plans of the few? And I think when we get to our next issue of biblical anthropology, that'll help us question whether we want to really have a centralized planner, if you will, because we're going to, we need to talk about the fall. Yeah, I think you maybe just corrected me in using spontaneous order and emergent order. Thank you. I agree, and that makes sense. I think the word spontaneous just sounds a little too crazy, chaotic. Emergent has a little more meaning as we see it, that through efforts of people looking out for themselves and their own family, an order emerges between their relationships. So definitely we'll run with that. So take us into this yeah, uh, fall to be distinction. But now we need to get to the bad news. We kind of had the good news that we're creating God's image and we're dependent upon him. But the next principle of biblical anthropology is that we're fallen because Eve ate the apple or whatever fruit it was. And humanity was judged and the uh, whole creation was cursed. And you all and your, your listeners can listen to the uh, or read the story in Genesis 3 of the, that terrible thing. I love that, by the way. I'm going to go ahead and uh, grab the copy I have of Universal Economics. I, I love the kind of the first thing that Ocean Al- and Alan talk about. And it was, but I love, he says this in the very first sentence of, of Universal Economics. Since the discouraging fiasco in the Garden of Eden, all the world has been a place conspicuous in its scarcity of resources, contributing heavily to an abundance of various sorrows and sin. And that's from a secular textbook, but, but, but we have to hit the fall, right? And, and because of the fall, and, and, and now creation is cursed, we start acting differently. We start acting selfishly. We start thinking about number one. And, and what we saw before the fall was humans were, were either, remember, uh, Adam and Eve were in, at the end of chapter two, they were naked and unashamed. Well, the first thing that happens after the, the fall is they have to cover themselves up. And so they now know this, this feeling of shame, and this is much broader, and obviously it's way beyond anything about clothes, right? Now humans have this feeling, we all introspectively see ourselves, and we feel vulnerable. We feel shamed, naked, and un- uncovered in certain situations. We've all done it in various uh, ways, and that's why public speaking, why, by the way, so many people are afraid of public speaking. But that leads to a really crazy result, and it's, it's, we tend to feel either inferior to others we start comparing ourselves to others, or we feel pridefully better than others. And we want to think about ourselves most of all in this, this fallen nature. And so we, instead of seeing our stewardship responsibilities, which we were given the garden as service to God, now we start to see about how do we, we meet this need that we have to try to cover up our nakedness somehow. And, and so we feel better about ourselves. Why do you think we have such movements on self-esteem and other kinds of things? So that's all back to the garden in the fall, but the economic implications are this. Now we are willing to use resources to exploit others and to benefit ourselves that was not part of God's original creation. And so it goes, as Alshon Allen says, the original fiasco leads to all sorts of bad, uh, in the garden leads to all sorts of bad outcomes. And we have to deal with that. And it has implications for what kind of economic systems we, we would have as well. Because here's the really the bottom line up front. 
We believe that everybody's fallen, not just those that are in the free market. That you know, this gets back to the uh, the old adage: "Who will guard the guardians?" Right? If you have the state be in charge of planning the economy because humans are falling and they're going to do all these wicked things. Well, what about the humans that are in charge of government? They're kind of wicked too. And so both political and economic wisdom that's applied from this suggests that you need to distribute kind of responsibility so that no one individual has as much power over others as they would like, because we're all prone to tend to want to abuse that privilege. So that, that's where we would start to go down to economic organization. I'll let you ask some questions on that one. So, Jeff, I had a question continuing on this idea of human anthropology. The way that I think of neoclassical economics is that the anthropology is that humans maximize a utility function. That's like the, the story. From your comments sure. right there, it, it seems like what you're saying is the fall changes the utility function, but doesn't change the fact that we maximize it. And that, that's what it seems to be what, what, what you're saying. But are you maybe even saying something more than that, that we're, we're not even maximizing the utility function? Or has the anthropology changed because the things that we want change or because the, the way that we pursue things have changed? You know, honestly, I think it's both. But I do think that it's a unfair critique of neoclassical economists. But the objective function that you can have can be a very rich function to include all sorts. Yes. It can include altruism and many other things. It could include service to God. Right. It could include many things. So I'd, I have other critiques of the neoclassical model that aren't necessarily going to be limited to that, that critique. I don't think that's as decisive as it might be because you can go as broad as you want to do. But what we can know about this is that now all sorts of, of things are going to be different. And, and here's, here's one of the things where the neoclassical model could be faulted. Okay, if we're going to have an objective function su subject to constraints and we're going to optimize our behavior, where do we capture the biblical view that everything is corrupted by the fall. We call it the noetic effects of the fall. Even our reason, even our rationality, everything has, sin corrupts everything at some level. So you can't really trust your optimizing procedure. There is no such possibility of a homo economicus, in other words. I'll, I'll throw that out there at least. You got me thinking on, Peter's question, utility function versus the per person. And I, it got me thinking that all of the resources to do good and evil were established from day one. I think everything was in place. Yeah. The, the only difference was the person. And so I went and whipped up Genesis 3, 4 here. You'll certainly die or 5. For God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So we didn't know about the evil parts. So a brick can be made to build an orphanage or a brick can be thrown through a plate grass window. The brick doesn't care. The brick is amoral. And so, I don't know. I just, that got me thinking about the good and evil distinction. And I thought it was interesting tying it into homo economists, but Peter has something different to say. He's smiling, smirking. Well, well no, I, I just think that's probably the first time we've quoted the, de the devil on the faith and economics podcast. <laughs> uh, you might want to address Russ's comment there differently. So, that, but this is kind of on the chain we were just talking on. In the Homo Economicus model, I'd say there is room for error, though, isn't there? Especially like as long as information is costly. Actually, like the efficient response is to make mistakes. Sure, but even that—that's not an error, right? 
it's efficient. Yes. We, I would say that once we do it, we think that is the efficient and, and optimizing behavior. Optimizing behavior is never meant to be perfection. So I think right. that's what you really need. Yes. Yeah, I agree with that. Justin? Yeah. So, 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 so let me come back to Russ's because I think Russ hit on a really important point that we haven't really captured as much as we should. And so this idea of the, 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 in the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the eat of it. Yeah, we even had that in chapter two, your idea of a brick being amoral. God introduces choice. It's implicit in chapter two when he introduces the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and also the tree of life in the ninth verse of chapter two and then tells them that in verse 17 of chapter two, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So we see choice from cover to cover. God has a plan for our freedom in our choices. And I think that's really driving a large part of how I view this intersection between economics and faith. Yeah. Uh, Justin, you had something? Yeah, I had a question that I think kind of bears on this, and I'd like to hear your thoughts. So it seems also like what you're saying when you're talking about choice and this, you know, ability to choose to eat the fruit from the tree when we've been told that it's not in, you know, our actual best interest to do so. In the history of philosophy, this is called acrasia or acratic behavior, which is doing something that is not, that is imprudent, that is against your own best interests, knowingly due to weakness of will. And so this is something that isn't, you know, maximizing utility function. And what, you know, what, what Peter was talking earlier about when he's saying, well, you know, maybe our wants or something have changed and that can explain why we do something differently or this idea that, you know, even rationally maximizing agents can make mistakes. If we look at them in hindsight, we can call them mistakes or whatever, because the information that they were acting on was faulty. This is a kind of different order of action where you are doing something knowingly that's against your own best interest due to what's called weakness of will. And I mean, this Mm -hmm. has been hard to explain for philosophers. So, you know, you have Plato and Socrates arguing about whether or not this is possible up until, you know, in the 20th century, people like Donald Davidson trying to come up with models of how we explain people who do things that are against their own best interests knowingly due to weakness of will. And one of the things that seems clear is that if you just take an empirical look about the way people behave, it seems like people sometimes do do that. But it seems like that kind of action might be precluded by a kind of homo economicus model of the way, you know, we want, we would want to model behavior. So I'm wondering if that's consistent with what you were saying about your critique of that model, or if that's, you know, off in left field and, you know, maybe you should keep the philosophers fenced up somewhere else. <laughs> have, have to the well, I, ha- I have to admit the, the, the philosopher throws the, the tough ones as philosophers are prone to do. Because there's there's a, a distinction that I would throw out there. I'm not going to give you a good answer, but I do want to add even more to your complexity. Uh, you know, for, for the what we see in the fall is one thing because I would assert to you, in, in the in the broadest sense of this question of free will, only Adam and Eve truly had free will in, in the sense that they were an they they had no priors guiding them. They could freely choose one thing or the other, right? After the fall, the Bible is is very clear. We have the sin nature. And so like Romans 6 talks about this, and and we're either slaves to sin or we're slaves to righteousness. Either way, we're going to be slaves. 
that doesn't mean we don't have agency. That doesn't mean we don't have choice. But it doesn't mean that it's not free in, in some sense. But what it does mean is it's not morally neutral what we do now. All of our choices now are morally neutral in the sense that we are, are not neutral now. Whereas with Adam and Eve, they had the real freedom to, to with no corruption, to do that. And, and I'll say something, I, I, I don't know whether theologians would agree with me. I would assert that even God doesn't have free will in that sense, because God cannot choose evil, because God cannot contradict himself, right? He, like, God, I'm not a man, I should not lie, right? You know, he can't do those things. Only Adam and Eve had that real freedom that we think about that we have today. It's, it, we're all corrupted now. So th- I just took us on a further rabbit trail in a different direction. You can delete this from your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so you're basically saying God can't choose evil, but he can create creatures that can choose evil. So that was his workaround for choosing evil? <laughs> uh, I wouldn't call that a workaround. <laughs> uh, you know, God, yeah, I wouldn't go there. But yeah, obviously, God had a plan that we don't understand. It's, it's a mysterious plan. He knew before the foundation of the earth that we were going to fail. He knew before the foundation of the earth that in his glorious plan of redemption, he was going to have a son that was going to save the, the world. Uh, and so all of that was in his plan. And that's way beyond my pay grade, unfortunately, to uh, fully understand it. I think yeah, it's going to take us eternity to kind of flesh that out. You're right. There's something interesting there. We oftentimes think of Genesis as being like a shock and God resorts to a second best plan, but he's God, God <laughs> is optimizing, right? He's in the first best plan and he always has been. <laughs> God uh, is economics. Yeah, yeah, yes. exactly. God is homo um, economics. And that's the way economists think, I think. So as we wrap up this episode, we still got time, by the way. I'd like to have you expand a bit on these economic systems, the implications of this stuff. Yeah. You know, as it let ties me, let to- me get one other, Russ, let me jump in because there's one other critical thing and then I'll jump right to your question. So I haven't hit kind of First Corinthians 12. And when we see in there, this is another key part of the human anthropology. I kind of implicitly got it as you saw God in each day of creation making more diversity. Well, we see that spelled out in the spiritual gifts. Romans 12 has it. 1 Corinthians 12 has it. God makes individuals for different purposes for the mutual benefit of one another, right? We each have different gifts and abilities. Not, he says, Apostle Paul says, not, you're not all hand, are you, for instance? And, and what this leads to is it leads to our ability to serve one another precisely because of our, dare I say it, our inequalities. <laughs> it's, precisely, it's precisely our differences that lead to social cooperation. And I argue that that's part of God's order and plan for our society, especially in a fallen world. If we were all alike, and I came across you in the wilderness and I had my club, I would feel free just to knock you out because what can you do for me? Because you're just like me and I kind of like me already. But if you have a skill that I don't have, you know, we might, there might be an ability for us to work together to make something better. I think that's part of God's plan, too. And markets kind of take this order of all of our different gifts that we bring to the table and allow us to have social cooperation, which I assert is part of God's common grace through markets. So that's at least another part of the, the biblical anthropology we have to get, is that God has created us uniquely different for his purposes. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I I think you're about to get here. But what I take from that is, you know, it's the example of clubbing the guy walking, you know, there's certainly something true there where we have benefits to not just hurting each other because we bring these different gifts in this form of common grace. 
but also the fall makes us unable to rely on each other for like recognizing that and agreeing to that. And so we have to constrain the ability to club each other somehow. Sure, sure. You know, I've made that argument that in, I've got an article in the Journal of Markets Morality where I assert that competitive market systems are a form of God's common grace. And it's precisely because competitive markets restrain the predations of what one individual could do to another that makes it part of God's common grace, because competitive forces preclude, you know, kind of the the worst monopoly kinds of privileges that we would see one would do to another. So I would assert that that's part of it as well. And that seems to lead you into economic systems that help further competitive markets, right? I'm guessing that's part of the implications. You want to expand on, on that a bit? Sure. So so again, if we wrap all that together, it's kind of four principles of biblical anthropology that we are created in the image of God, that we are finite and dependent beings and ought to have some humility, that we are fallen, so we tend to want to have predations against others, and yet we have differing gifts that can be used to serve one another. All that, then we ask ourselves a question, okay, what kind of economic system is in full recognition of all of those features of humanity. And I would assert that free markets is the most closely aligned way that recognizes all this. We want a system where everybody is free to exercise their gifts, both as being created in the image of God. It's, It's distinct and unique that they can go serve however they want. We want to see where they can serve with their gifts according to their calling with others, that First Corinthians kind of thing. We want to make sure that there's a system where one central planner can't dominate because we can't trust them because they're fallen too. And so we don't like socialism and communism from that aspect. And likewise, because we're finite dependent beings and we don't have it all, we have this knowledge problem that Hayek talks about. That ought to give us a little bit of a caution with respect to thinking we actually do have this ability to create an order. And I would assert it's, it's, again, it's God's common grace that allows all of us to participate and have that order that emerges. And of course, we can always then look at the proof of history that supports that with all the empirical evidence. Wow, Jeff, that was some great closing comments to bring this episode to a close. I'd like to thank you very much for being on the show today. Well, thank you for the time and, and hope your listeners enjoyed it. All right. And you got a plug for the your most recent book, the title of the book one more time? Sure. All you have to do is search for my name, Jeff Heyman, No Free Lunch, Economics for a Fallen World. The best way to get it is the source where we host it on our uh, website is the Digital Commons, which a lot of people use. If you search, they can find it or they could always reach out to me and you can download the book if you'd like. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you listeners for chiming in and hearing what Dr. Jeff Heyman had to say today. Uh, We certainly appreciate it and I hope you got something out of it too. This has been a production of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University. And if you'd like to hear more comments from people like Jeff and others about faith and economics, give us a five-star rating. That helps other people climb the ranks. And we also have a little donate button on our Gortney Institute website. So you can find us there. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks. Thank you.